Andrew Pascal, welcome to the Vegas Gang Podcast. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Um, we have a lot to talk to you about today. We really appreciate you spending the time with our listeners. Um, you've had a, a very interesting career so far, and I'm sure a lot more to come, and we can't wait to, uh, to dive into it. So why don't we, uh, we just get started, and I'll ask right off the top, how did you originally get started in hospitality? You know, uh, well, first of all, I really appreciate even having the opportunity to participate in the show. It's great. Um, you know, I've, I've for a long time just had a passion for Las Vegas and for hospitality and for themed entertainment and, you know, dating back to when I was a kid. And, and so when I was actually uh, going to school, uh, I'd spend my summers, my, my father lived in Las Vegas, I'd spend my summers in Las Vegas and I worked at the Golden Nugget downtown on kind of a rotation where I got exposure to just about every operating function within the, the resort, um, with the exception of the gaming areas at the time. And so I just thought it was really cool that, you know, here was a place that was all focused on just delivering fun to the people that were there vacationing. And so I think that's when I first started to get enamored with the whole hospitality industry and, and I guess gaming more specifically. I think um, it's well known that you have a, a family connection to um, at least a somewhat well-known uh, gaming entrepreneur, and um, so you know, obviously, Elaine Wynn. Yeah, <laughs> well, she's uh, she's pretty amazing, um, and of course, yeah. uh, she's um, her ex-husband and also a very amazing uh, gentleman, Mr. Steve Wynn. Um, yeah. What must what must have that have been like for you growing up with that connection and watching you know them build two companies into giant uh, just forces to be reckoned with. That must have been, and of course, we'll talk about your, your involvement in, in WIN a little bit later, but what was that like? Yeah. You know, it was, uh, I, I feel really fortunate because, um, and, and I think they helped to shape for me so much of my sensibilities around, you know, how to, how to create and deliver an experience that, you know, is really refined and has a lot of substance to it. Um, and so, you know, growing up in and around the industry and certainly having a ton of exposure to them, um, you know, I was just always so enamored with how unbelievably committed they were to delivering something that, um, was just a very high quality and uncompromising as far as the, you know, attention to the details. Um, and, and just, you know, I think that, uh, well, look, if you look at all of their work and as you point out, the companies that they've built, you know, every aspect of them uh, has just been so carefully crafted uh, and it just leaves you feeling like there's just a, a tremendous amount of substance that, you know, underlies each aspect of the experience. And it doesn't matter whether you are a consumer that is going and enjoying one of their resorts or you know, whether you're an employee or part of the team, I think everybody feels enriched uh, having kind of touched or, or, you know, consuming or being a part of one of their resorts in some way. So it was, it was, it was great. And I learned a ton. Um, I guess I also learned that, you know, you've got to be bold and you, you know, you, you've got to trust your sensibilities and your experience. And at the same time, you've got to be creative and you've got to, you know, imagine and think of new and big ideas and you can't be intimidated by, you know, the, you know, what's likely to take in order to execute on them. Yeah. And, and that's not to say that, you know, you need to, um, that they don't require a tremendous amount of effort and work and, and you've got to bring to bear a lot of different people from different disciplines and a whole lot of experience in order to execute. I mean, but what they recognize is, look, let's, let's take these ideas that we have and let's go find the best people we possibly can right. to help execute on them. So, so uh, you know, I'm, I'm having that connection must have opened many opportunities for you, but at the same time, I look at your history and I would love to turn the clock back a few years. And, you know, you're a, a serial entrepreneur, really. I mean, you've started and, and uh, sold several companies and are now working on another one. Uh, when, I was very excited to do this interview because, as my listeners will know, when I'm, when I'm not doing uh, this, I am, uh, I'm in the technology industry. I work in, uh, in creating mobile apps as well. So I love, cool. love the oh, industry. And like, yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's just it's such an exciting place to be right now. And so as far as 
Um, you know, you're, I, I see you as this very interesting hybrid of someone that's been involved in gaming, but is also in the technology space. Um, let's go back a little ways. How did you get started with, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but Silicon Gaming was your first company that you started. And uh, how, did that, right. how did that come about? And um, sort of remind us where the industry was technology-wise at the time. Well, so first, you know, you're right. I kind of bounced back and forth between between being a technology and content provider to the industry and also being an operator. Um, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area in San Francisco, uh, but then spent most of my vacations and summers in Las Vegas. And so, you know, I, I tend to go through these cycles that seem to last somewhere between seven and nine years where I'm either on the operating side uh, and helping to kind of create these really cool vacation experiences or um, on the technology side trying to enable, you know, new style or, or ever richer game experiences and content that we can, you know, somehow get into the industry. So, you know, Silicon Gaming was really the, was the first company that I was part of as a startup. Uh, and it was really born out of, you know, I'd spent, you know, three or four years working for Steve at the time downtown at the Golden Nugget, and we'd just gone through the cycle of opening up the Mirage. And, you know, we spent a ton of time really focusing on the consumer and the games they were playing and what it was about the games that really captivated them. Um, and, I mean, really breaking the games down, not just at a superficial level in terms of, you know, the theme and the creative execution and presentation of the games, but really understanding the underlying math and the way that the, the proposition is designed and the way that, you know, the symbols are mapped on the reels and, you know, the rhythm and cadence and the way that the games play out. And, you know, there was, I was fascinated by the subtlety and nuance um, that really you needed to go into creating and crafting a great game. And so, um, having worked with most of the manufacturers that were serving the industry at the time, I felt like we were we were limited by the technology that was available at the time. I would characterize the games at the time as being, you know, not all that different from kind of pinball machines. They were fixed application pieces of the hardware. They were three wheel slot machines where, you know, you would uh, insert coins, pull a handle, wheels would spin an index. And they would resolve, and you'd either win a jackpot or not. And if you wanted to evolve the game, change the game, uh, it meant that you had to physically go into that machine, uh, change out the reels and reel strips and, and all the glass that presented the proposition to the player, and the underlying program was on an EEPROM chip. Um, and so it just seemed... You know, in light of the fact that, you know, there was this whole personal computer industry and the quality of the game experiences on uh, more traditional consumer game consoles that evolved so much, it just seemed like it, it was a natural progression for the industry to make that leap from being kind of these fixed application pieces of hardware to, you know, something that was more flexible and leveraged existing technology and more software-based, uh, and that that in turn would unleash a whole nother wave of creativity uh, and allow you to take a game that was largely static and make it far more dynamic and add a lot of depth to it. And that's really what Silicon Gaming, that was the, the kind of ambition of that whole business. It was to tap the technology of the Valley and the creative community here in, in the Bay Area and deliver games that felt more like television that you could gamble on than traditional slot machines. And so, you know, we, we built at the time it was, uh, you know, the first PC-based platform, and it was a multi-game device that had six different games, and each game had multiple levels of play, you know, which added a lot of depth. And, Is that the Odyssey um, machine? Very, that's correct. and had very rich production values and... Uh, they they all had the capacity to be networked. Um, the, the games were stored on a hard drive. It was the first time we had to actually go and work very closely with the Gaming Control Board to adopt a whole new set of technical standards and statutes so that our technology could be actually leveraged in the industry. And, and so there was a ton of new invention uh, that got us to a place where we had a platform that enabled then, you know, that added level of creativity. And, and so, we, you know, we ultimately sold that company to IGT but I, I really believe that it was kind of the catalyst for, you know, a whole wave of innovation in the industry. Um, and it was really around that time that, you know, IDT uh, and then, uh, you know, Bally's and Williams, they went out and they either uh, 
they either acquired talent from the more traditional consumer game or, or, or kind of pinball industries, or they just within their own company said, look, we're going to, we're going to go in a different direction. And, you know, there was a, a period of like 10 years where all of a sudden the games became much like what they are today, right. you know? Right. So it was fun. It was a lot of fun. So you sell that, as you mentioned, you sold that company to IGT. And so you exit at that point. Um, is WagerWorks next up or was there something in between, take some time off, or, or were you ready to get started on your next idea? <laughs> yeah, no, no time off. Uh, we actually incubated WagerWorks as a, a business development exercise within Silicon Gaming. And so when we were looking at how and where the opportunities to grow the company were going to come from, we saw that the Internet had emerged as a real viable channel for distributing game content. And there were a bunch of, you know, startup companies operating out of these gray markets that were serving the interactive gambling market. And we felt like, you know, we had a ton of intellectual property that we could leverage in those channels. And when we looked at the companies that were providing the platforms and content and operating all these internet gambling sites, you know, they were largely unregulated and being offered by companies that people had never heard of. And so we felt like, wow, well, we have, you know, we understand the regulated environments and um, we have relationships with really well-established gambling brands. Why don't we craft a business that's focused on helping them really tap into this opportunity? And so uh, that was the basic idea and uh, we had a small group that was headed up by a, a colleague, Paul Miltenberger, and, um, and so they, they went off, and, and uh, we, we came up with a vision and plan for what we first wanted to deliver, which was a proof of concept, which was to go partner up with a traditional casino brand and then execute a casino, a collection of casino games on the Internet that people could play for free. And in the course of playing those games, they could amass loyalty points, which they could then redeem for real-world stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we partnered up with the MGM, and we executed on that model. And we very quickly amassed an audience of hundreds of thousands of players. I mean, we were shocked. And the idea was to kind of prove out that their brands had value in these channels and that people that were on the Internet kind of would enjoy you know, playing games of chance, even if, they, if it was for free. Um, and so, you know, everything about that exercise was great with one exception. We couldn't figure out how to make any money. Right? <laughs> People were, they were playing for free and, uh, and, and certainly enjoying the benefits of, you know, redeeming their points for real world stuff. And so we literally, we turned off the free to play model in that product. And because we felt like we'd now validated some of the core assumptions about going after a regulated uh, for cash or real money gambling market. Uh-huh. So we went to we went to Europe and we brought we helped the MGM launch their brand over in Europe and then we also partnered up with Virgin and Sky and Paddy Power in Ireland and the Rank organization which uh, is a big gaming provider over there and the Hard Rock brand and so you know we were there early we were the first licensee uh, I believe in both Isle of Man and Alderney uh, and I think that our bringing those really well-established, more traditional companies into the interactive gambling space kind of signaled to the market that, that this was a legitimate industry and it could be conducted in a way that was responsible, that you as a consumer could transact and, and consume game content from these companies without the risk of you know, not knowing who they were, where they were operating from. Right. And as a result, there was a ton of capital that flowed into the market and a bunch of innovation. And, and, and Europe is clearly the most mature and competitive interactive market today. And so as we went through that cycle, uh, we were actually pretty close to taking that company public, getting it listed over on the exchange in, in Europe. And, uh, and IGP ended up buying that company as well before we actually went through and, and went effective on that exchange. And so, um, so that, that too was fun. You know, it was, it was really a, just a, a great experience looking at an entirely new channel and figuring out how we could leverage all this really rich, fun gambling content that we created uh, in an entirely different, unique way. I definitely remember WagerWorks. I remember playing playing the games and checking it out back in the day. I remember people people were very disappointed when the uh, then the U.S. version was no longer available. They liked getting the their free stuff. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, look, you could fast forward to today, right? We you know, will. I just said, I, I, if you if you think about it, what we built today with Play Studios and the My Vegas uh, game on Facebook and the My Vegas application uh, on mobile devices, it, it's really that vision, right? I mean, yep. although we figured out how to turn that into a sustainable business now, it, it's okay that people can start off playing for free, but if they want to progress deeper into the game experience or at a faster rate or take advantage of certain features of the game, well, you know, then they'll have to, to some of them will have to pay and a very small percentage of them do, but we have such a large audience right. of players that are actively engaged in the game that it actually makes for a pretty compelling business opportunity. And so, you know, it's pretty interesting that, you know, all these things that we did over the course of the last 15 years um, that we tried in all these different channels, you know, are finally uh, kind of maturing to the point where we can actually create a lot of value with them. Well, we definitely want to ask some questions about Play Studios and My Vegas, but before we get there, we don't want to skip over yeah. uh, this period where you worked for this little mom and pop company um, <laughs> in Las Vegas called uh, Wind Resorts. So um, yeah. I, I'm not sure if I have my uh, timeline exactly right, but I believe you were there. 2003 to 2010. Does that sound about right? Uh, that's correct. So, you know, during that time, of course, we saw both Win Las Vegas and Encore open, um, which must yeah. have been quite quite the experience to uh, to go through that process. Um, you know, our yeah. our listeners are, I think it would be fair to say, on balance, big, big fans of both of those properties. And uh, we've been lucky enough to talk to Roger Thomas and DeRider Butler and some other folks about sort of the conception of the properties and how they were put together. Um, mm -hmm. I'm wondering, as, sort of as a question along those lines, you know, as, as you are part of this team that launches these properties, uh, the idea of balancing the design of the facility, what's going to go in and what's going to go where and how it's going to fit together and, and the costs and the financial aspects of it. Um, you know, you look at uh, someone like Steve Wynn, who's famous for building beautiful properties that uh, in include lots of things that nobody's ever seen before and spare no expense. But how do you balance that with sort of the financial realities of you have to build a building that can turn a profit um, and you have to do these things in an intelligent way? Is that, is that a tough uh, tightrope to walk? Look, I think that's in part the, the brilliance of Steve Wynn um, is that he has just an unbelievable consumer sensibility, uh, which he can then translate into, uh, you know, a plan, a, a master plan and a program for the resort that just seems to work. Uh, and he's, I think, better at it than anybody else in the industry. And so there are a whole bunch of people around him that help to inform the solutions with different feasibility, you know, studies. And, and, and I would say it's not overly burdened with a lot of analysis, but he relies pretty heavily on all of his past experience and what's worked and what hasn't worked. Uh, and then the operating team that he's assembled around him to help provide information about the relative scale of different components and, um, you know, in order to accommodate what would likely be the capacity that both resides within the resort as hotel residents or that's going to walk into the projects. And then there's this very iterative process of coming up with a plan and then continuing to refine it, moving elements around and getting everybody to kind of consider it. And, you know, he's there with the writer and with Roger. And, you know, I know that you've in your previous, um, you know, shows that, you know, talk to those guys about how their process and their contribution works. But, you know, it's a collaboration, but Steve's the, Steve's the point of integration, right? And he gets all of that input uh, and then makes decisions about the way these places work. Um, and so programmatically and I guess, uh, you know, functionally, that's, that's a very high-level description of the way it works. And then once the basic program is established, then you just continue to drill down ever deeper into a, a more specific definition of what that particular component or outlet or part of the experience is going to be and taking into account everything, not only creatively what it is and how it integrates into the overall story and personality of the place, but then functionally, how is it going to be operated and how can we execute on that experience consistently and predictably and deliver to everybody that's going to encounter it you know, the same kind of emotional connection to it. And, and so that's, 
you know, at the end of the day, that's where I spent more of my time, you know, focusing on, um, you know, operationally, how we, how we get the entire team unified around the, the basic ideas and the core values of the company and the way that we deliver on, you know, the, the service and, and the experience. So it's a, it's a very collaborative and iterative exercise. It feels to me like that really comes through when you talk to Win Las Vegas or Encore employees. They, it does, I definitely get the sense of sort of a unified mission and a unified set of core values. How, how does Wind Resorts do that better than maybe some of their competitors? Because without you know, naming names or uh, shaming anybody, I don't necessarily get that sense at some of their competitors' properties in the city. Is there a special sauce that, that Wind Resorts has to make that work? You know, I think so. You know, and I don't think it's that complicated of an idea. It's, it's very difficult to achieve, but, you know, fundamentally you need to, you need to engender a deep sense of pride among the people that are working with you. And I think where that comes from for, you know, the wins is from their commitment to being the best. That's not to say that, that we were, that we are, that they are, right? But there was a commitment to being the best. And, and so that meant that every decision that was made, whether it was about the design of, of the facilities or, you know, the level of decor and the investment that was made uh, in their execution or uh, the, you know, the, the floral programs or the horticulture or... Um, you know, just every single aspect of the project reinforces for the people that are there that there's a level of refinement and a commitment to creating something that is so unique and so special and that really that they're an important part of it and that they, too, have to make sure that they are equally as committed to deliver, delivering to that level. And it's really hard work. Um, and everybody, I mean, it's incredibly demanding. But I think that once you get to, once you start to have some success and once people start to feel and realize what these places are and what their potential is, it just breeds a level of enthusiasm and engagement and, uh, and a level of commitment that ultimately translates to them just being really proud of being a part of it. And, and so when that gets reinforced is when, you know, there they encounter a friend or they meet somebody new and in a casual conversation, they ask where you work and they say, I work at when Las Vegas or at Encore. And, they, and inevitably the person lights up and says, Oh my gosh, I love that place. Or right. that place is spectacular. And, and, and so what they're constantly getting is that reinforcement from people that they are a part of something that is special. And so as a result, they, they know that there's just a different standard and a different level of commitment that's required. And, and so from that comes, uh, you know, all kinds of wonderful stuff, you know, great new ideas and people going out of their way to do the unexpected uh, and the experience not feeling very rote or mechanical. Instead, you know, when you're there, ideally you feel like people are connecting with you uh, and really taking an interest in caring for you because the way you respond to them is what validates uh, for them, you know, how special and unique the place is. And then it's somewhat kind of self-perpetuating. Yeah. And the minute, the minute you stop emphasizing those things, right, then, you know, you stop, you, you become good as opposed to great. And, you know, there's a lot of good places around, sure. but the, the exception to be a part of something that is really special and where, you know, everybody seems so, um, you know, so committed to making sure that your experience is memorable. I've got a, a couple other questions I want to ask about the, the wind stuff, and then I want to talk in depth about uh, Play Studios. Um, okay. We actually had Seth Shore on the show last week, and he he said something that I, that stood out to me that I really uh, really liked. He he was talking about his dad's experience at Wynn Resorts, and and he was saying that the company was really run like the world's largest mom and pop operation. And I really like the way that that sounds. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, I do. You know, it's uh, it, it's very rare that you have a company of you know thousands and thousands of employees. 
where you know the 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 people that are making the decisions and affecting the change are accessible and available to you and and just happy to engage you and uh, absolutely you know the the people there that run that company are really connected to the employees that that execute and run the place every day and the consumers that are there enjoying it. And I think you can feel that it doesn't in any way feel institutional, you know, uh, it is. So I I think that's a good way to characterize it. Um, as you guys were developing an opening win Las Vegas, developing an opening encore, uh, Macau happened big for win resorts, right? I mean, that property opened and has since gone on to both, both be expanded and become a major source of revenue for the company. I'm wondering how, especially as you, I would think as you're, working on Encore-related stuff, how the experience in Macau, the company's experience in Macau, influences uh, or changes operations in Las Vegas? You know, um, it's a great question. I I would say that our experience in Macau was really more about uh, expanding the company and bringing into it a a new group of people that had – um, a lot of different experiences and a different kind of frame of reference about how to operate resorts like this. And, and so through just partnering up with them and engaging them and how they do what they do and being open and sharing with them all the lessons that we had learned and how we function and operate, I think that it just uh, it inspired a, another level of kind of refinement and thinking about how we wanted to operate these places. And so, you know, for the most part, they're, they're operated and run as distinctly different places. And, you know, they've got their own subcultures. But early on, at least, we, we tried to ensure that there was a fair amount of exchange of ideas and operating practices between, you know, the different companies. And so, you know, we'd have an exchange program where, you know, employees and leaders from both companies would come and spend time in Las Vegas or go and spend time in Macau and actually be a part of the team and work. And, um, and I, I think that that was just really healthy. I think it also gave everybody a more worldly perspective, you know, on the company. You know, it's really easy to get just so consumed with and into what you're focused on, so operating this big campus in Las Vegas and being insulated from what's really happening out there in the world. And, and so it's, just, it's such a great experience to go over to Asia and, and to visit a property, uh, you know, the wind property there uh, or Encore, and, you know, you can feel that it's the same company, you know, and yet it's in a completely different geography and with cultural points of reference and a different design in the way that it's executed. Um, but it's the same company, and I think it gets back to what I was alluding to earlier, which is that there's just a, 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 such a unified commitment among everybody to try and be the best um, so, but, yeah. it, but it was pretty cool. I learned a lot from, you know, Ian Colin, who's the, the president of the property in Macau, who's one of the most extraordinary hospitality guys I've ever come across and, uh, just enjoyed my conversations with him and learning from him. He was, he was terrific. Speaking of Encore in Vegas, um, you know, when it was conceived, we had one economy in the United States and when it opened, we yeah. had, we had another one. Um, yeah. In that run-up, when it was clear that things in, in the U.S. Uh, were souring, um, how did you guys feel about that? Was that a source of a lot of anxiety? Um, clearly, the, you opened the property as, as planned, uh, but yeah. I'm just wondering what that was like. I mean, you, you're running up against it this was, horrible, horrible thing. Yeah, I mean, it was one of the most challenging things I've ever done, and I certainly learned more going through that experience than probably just about any other point in my career. But, you know, we conceived of and crafted Encore. We started the, the program planning and the design development on Encore before we'd even opened up in Las Vegas. And so here we were opening it up in December of 08, and it was, you know, Steve characterized it's like opening up an outdoor cafe in a blizzard. <laughs> and so you know, I remember, um, you know, very distinctly having, you know, dinner with Steve, and it was in early December. And, you know, we were running occupancies, that were as low as we've ever run at Wynn, Las Vegas. And we were about to add, you know, 2,000 rooms of capacity. And, you know, we understood, 
you know, what our role was in the overall landscape of the marketplace, that we were the price leader and, and that whatever we did that would somehow impact price would ultimately be felt by everybody else in the market. And so we held out as long as we could to a price point that we felt would in, in some way help Dooley or prop up, you know, everybody in the market. But it was just so clear that, you know, that the contraction of the economy was, uh, it would just so dramatically impact a visitation to Las Vegas and the amount that people were willing to spend uh, once they got there. And so, you know, we made, we sat around and, you know, this is after looking at all of our peers going through serial rounds of layoffs and, you know, which just so deeply compromises the spirit of the place. You know, if, if your employees come to work every day and they don't know if today's the day that they're going to lose their job, right. um, you know, it just, they can't function in the same way. And so we were just so committed to going to our employees and saying, look, you do not have to worry about your job. No one is going to lose your job. And, uh, and, and what that meant was that we were going to do a whole bunch of other things in order to, to reduce the cost structure of running and operating our business um, without also then compromising the integrity of the experience we were trying to deliver. And so, you know, I had to work with my team to craft that solution. And we took, you know, over $100 million out of our cost structure. We never laid off an employee. Uh, we employed a completely different strategy in the way that we were going to drive the occupancy and utilization of our of all of our capacity, not just in the hotels, but in our restaurants and in our shows, uh, and, and do everything that we could to still maintain the kind of experience that people would expect from a, a wind property. And so we put that plan in place and executed, and the team just did a phenomenal job. And I think, uh, you know, the employees deeply appreciated that, you know, they could come to work and they weren't going to be one of those people like their family or their friends that all of a sudden showed up and lost their jobs and they were just devastated and had such profound impact on, you know, on their family's lives. And so, you know, they felt safe with us and they understood how committed we were to them and that mattered. And then we coupled, we coupled that with, um, a pretty aggressive capital campaign where we, we decided to accelerate and actually renovate all of the rooms it went, uh, in a collection of restaurants and the spa and salon. And the thinking there was that let's, we could afford to take that inventory out of the market because uh, we didn't have the demand for it and that it would take us a year and a half to two years to complete all that work uh, as it got staged and phased so that at the end of the cycle, when the market started to firm up and we wanted to reclaim our price, we could do it now with a refreshed and new product as opposed to something that felt no different than what they used to pay an otherwise you know, discounted rate. Sure, very clever. And so, so that was the strategy. You know, let's, let's maintain the spirit of the employees. Let's maintain the integrity of the experience. Let's save money everywhere we possibly could. And then let's go and renovate the place so that if the timing's right and the market starts to firm up, uh, we have the basis for reclaiming our price. And I think that's generally the way it's played out. Yeah. So in 2010, you decide to leave uh, Wind Resorts. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in this transition. Uh, anything that you want to say about your decision to leave, but also uh, Play Studios and how it originated and how you went from you know running uh, those resorts in Las Vegas to doing what you're doing now? Yeah. Well, look, I, I felt like I had made my contribution there, and I was interested. You know, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I love being in a position where I'm constantly challenged and learning and growing and I didn't want to be one of those guys that had that looks back on his his career with a company of you know 15 years or 20 years, and it's really you know five or 10 years, two times over. You know, I need to to have unique and different experiences and be challenged in order to grow. And it was clear that that wasn't going to happen for me there any longer. And so I worked with Steve on a transition, and uh, I we talked about it you know in the fall. Um, and finally, uh, left in December and I took a month and a half off to decompress a little bit. Um, and then I was on, and then all of a sudden the idea started flowing, 
you know, in the, in the seven or eight years that I'd gone through the cycle of, you know, helping to build and open and normalize and optimize win and then encore, you know, entirely new channels of consuming content had emerged. All of a sudden there's Facebook with at the time 600 million users today, it's over a billion and a half. And, you know, people were consuming, you know, more and more content and entertainment content on their mobile devices. And, you know, it was fascinating to me. And so, you know, here I, here I go again, right? I started off my career as an operator and spent six or seven years doing that. And then I became, decided to focus on the technologies that enable us to deliver a more interesting and richer experience. And I, I did that for seven or eight years. And then I went and became an operator again. And I learned a whole new set of skills around, you know, how to build and grow organizations of a very large scale, but, um, you know, keep people unified and really deeply connected to the place and, and, the, and what we're trying to execute on. And so now it was time to go learn again about these new channels. And so I reactivated my network here in the Bay Area and uh, it became really obvious to me that, you know, there was a huge opportunity uh, to deliver gambling content on Facebook and on mobile devices. And, you know, it, it turns out, you know, one of my neighbors is Jim Urin. Uh-huh. And, you know, and Jim and I have a long history. He's one of the more significant kind of mentors and, and friends that I've had in, in my life. And, that, and I say significant because at every major inflection point in my career where things could have either been very difficult for me or they could have gotten very exciting, he was there to nudge me in the direction of them getting more exciting. And so, you know, here I was again, and he's my neighbor, and we were on a hike, and, and he said, what are you thinking of doing? And I said, you know, I'm not really sure. I've got some ideas. He says, why don't you come in and let's chat about it? And so I remember I set up the appointment, and it was for three weeks after the, after the time I set it up. And I, you know, I remember driving over to visit with him, and I'm like, you know, he's a busy guy. And, and here I am. I'm going to sit down and take a half hour out of his day. You know, i got to have something <laughs> <Right>. of substance <laughs> to talk to him about. So I show up in his office and I pitch him the idea, which really was a recycling of, you know, what was the original WagerWorks idea, but now on a, on a new platform and a, and a new channel with, you know, hundreds of millions of connected consumers with a business model that made sense and with a profile of a consumer that we wanted to target, right? I mean, there were middle-aged women that were affluent and well-educated. And, and so, you know, 10 minutes into the conversation, uh, you know, he basically said, look, this sounds really exciting. And he, he pulled in Bill Hornbuckle and we chatted for another 20 minutes and we had the framework of a relationship. And so he says, I said, look, I'm going to go start a company. And he said, well, great. We'd love to be your partner in some form. And so, you know, that was really the birthing of Play Studios. And I, and I should also point out that another colleague of, uh, of mine uh, that was at Silicon Gaming in the early days and WageWorks, his name is Paul Matthews. I actually brought Paul Matthews, who after we sold WagerWorks, went to work for IGT for about four and a half years running their interactive group. Uh-huh. I brought him in to win to help Steve resolve kind of his strategy and thinking around our, the whole poker opportunity. Uh-huh. And he, he, in the background, would, would keep telling me about what was happening on Facebook and this virtual goods model and how I needed to learn about it and how it was just a huge opportunity. And so between Paul's urging and Jim being so receptive to the idea, uh, it seemed just natural that that would be the channel that we focus on. And so that was, that's really the genesis of the whole idea. Had you ever considered doing something that wasn't gaming related, uh, after win? You know, um, I guess I would have been open and receptive to it. Uh, you know, as I shared with you, I've always had a fascination with themed entertainment, uh, and so I guess conceptually I toyed with the idea of maybe getting into the theme park industry a little bit, but <laughs> you know, I, I just, I have such a passion for, you know, Las Vegas and I think it's the most unique place on the planet. I mean, where else are you going to find 41 million people that come to just have fun, you know, in a two mile or three mile stretch. <laughs> it's just such a, it's such a unique place with, with underlying economics that allow you to do things that are pretty extraordinary that you really couldn't afford to do or, in just about any other market. And so, you know, I guess I didn't think about it too much. I'm wondering, uh, you guys are based in uh, the Bay Area. 
Um, was that a? I mean, technology obviously is known. Uh, Silicon Valley is known for technology companies. Las Vegas is known for gaming companies. Was there any ever discussion of being based uh, in Vegas instead? Sure. You know, I, I would say that you know we actually have offices in three different cities. Uh, we've got a, an office in Las Vegas, and that's where our partner marketing and loyalty marketing disciplines are based. Uh, we've got a development group in the Bay Area, and then we also have an engineering group in Austin, Texas. And so, you know, our philosophy was we had a pretty ambitious idea, and we knew we were going to need talent that had a deep experience, you know, creating games and deploying them on these platforms. And so it was really a matter of where could we find the talent the fastest uh-huh. and spin this thing up and go capitalize on this market opportunity. And so, you know, have we been able to staff up and hire and get the people that we needed in Las Vegas? We were just as happy to, to build the team there. As it turns out, there isn't a better place to do it than in Silicon Valley and in San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that just happens to be where, where we ended up. I, I want to talk a little bit about actually the the games and the process of creating them. I mean, I, I'm wondering, uh, in terms of creating this stuff, are you building all this stuff in house? It sort of sounds like, based on your last answer, that the answer is probably yes. But I'm curious if that's the case. And I'm also wondering, how do you make a game that's fun? Uh, well, the first question, yeah, we yes, we do. We build everything in house. So you know, we built a company that has every discipline that's needed in order to, you know, qualify the market opportunity, craft the product strategy, translate that into, uh, you know, a design and a plan that's actionable, the collection of resources across all the disciplines, whether it's, you know, art directors and designers and technical artists and proposition designers and economy designers and producers and front-end engineers and back-end engineers and quality assurance engineers, and we have all those disciplines within the company, and then business intelligence and insights, experts, data scientists that instrument everything to ensure that we're collecting data on everything that our consumers and players are doing so that we can continue to refine and optimize the product to ensure that it's, it's engaging and entertaining and as successful as it can possibly be. And so, you know, we do all of that stuff. And it is, this is the most creative and, and stimulating and interesting thing I think I've ever done. Um, and so, you know, all those disciplines exist primarily uh, in both uh, San Francisco and Austin. Um, and then we have the whole loyalty marketing dimension of our business, which is about extending these real-world rewards to the people that have an affinity for our games. And, uh, and so that's a very important component of our business, and, and that team exists and, and is based in Las Vegas. You know, as far as, okay, so, you know, you, you got a bunch of people that are pretty talented. How do you get them focused on creating something that's fun and engaging? You know, I would say that it's, you know, it's a complement of, of both art and science. And so, you know, we have we have our own sensibilities and our own playbook that we think make for a really fun, engaging gambling game. But we continue to challenge and test that thinking and those ideas every day. Uh, and so they're constantly being refined. And so, you know, you got to be careful that you, you don't, you don't rely too heavily on just the data and the metrics to optimize and refine your products and help tell you, you know, what's, what's fun and engaging and what's not. There's always that creative leap that you have to take, mm-hmm. you know, where you've, you've done some stuff and people seem to have liked it and now you got to step it up a notch. And so that just comes from having really talented people, you know, in the company. I, we have a, one of my partners, this guy named Nicholas Koenig, he's a co-founder and he was at Silicon Gaming. He was at WagerWorks and he did a ton of work for IGT and, you know, he's a renaissance guy. He's done everything from sculpt and weld to, wow. to, to art direct movies and television shows to AAA consumer game titles. He's done theme park design for Universal Studios and a bunch of different Asian companies. I mean, he's, he's actually executed in so many different uh, genres and mediums that uh, he's just a remarkable guy. And so, you know, you just make sure that he has exposure to people that understand these channels and, you know, exposure to the consumer and the people that are playing these games. And then there's the creative process that, you know, you just come up with a bunch of 
of different ideas that we then vet and decide which ones we're going to invest in and execute. On um, uh, Dave, I know you want to get in there. Yeah. I, I have one specific game question I want to ask, and then you can uh, then you can sure. drive in there. As far as the games going, I uh, I was uh, fiddling with uh, my Vegas a little bit, and I actually also talked to. Um, some regular players and uh, got some of their insights and some of the questions that they had. One of the questions that came up was around the table game segment, and I know right now your guys are offering the blackjack game, but folks are wondering if you plan to offer any other table game, casino games like craps or roulette or whatever else. We do. Uh, It's a great question. It's been on our roadmap for a long time and continues to kind of get deprioritized relative to a lot of the other features um, and, and other games that we've been investing in. But we, we absolutely have plans to extend the table game suite a little bit. Fantastic. Dave? Yes. Um, you talked a little bit, little bit about the limits of data. And I know if you're in operations or building a slot machine, you can collect all the data you want about the users and about the guests, but you can also walk into a casino floor and see what's going on and watch how people engage with the machine, watch how people engage with the property. How can you do that for something like MyVegas, where people are using it on their own mobile devices or in their computers and you can't be there to see them? Well, uh, that's a really great question. And what I can tell you is that there is more data available to me now than I have ever had at any point in my career. Uh, whether it's about the consumers and who they are and their habits and the frequency of play and what they're playing and what they're doing. Uh, and so, you know, the, the applications are highly instrumented so that in aggregate, we're not necessarily looking at any one player specifically, although we can, we look in aggregate at different segments of players based upon different profiles that we define. And we look at what their behavior is within the game um, and so we can collect all the, the very, the lowest level, uh, kind of atomic data on every action that's being taken and, uh, and kind of resolve, you know, where and how do, do we need to change the game and the application in order to make it more engaging and interesting. And then there's a bunch of qualitative stuff that you can do where you can run focus groups and you can collect people and get them together and, actually have them play the products and talk to you and tell you how they feel about them as they go through the experience. There's ways of doing that, you know, in person and also remotely. There are services that people can sign up to and you can define the profile of consumer that you're targeting and they go out and they recruit them. And then they actually, uh, they have the tools where they record themselves as they play your products. And they just kind of talk out loud as they engage with it. And they say, well, oh, wow, this is cool and interesting and that's cute and all that. I didn't know that that was there. And well, I'm confused now and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And well, that, that doesn't appeal to me at all. You know what? I would stop playing right now if I weren't, you know, part of this curated session. Uh, and so, you know, the reality is in a more structured way, we can collect feedback and data um, in a far more efficient, efficient way than we ever have. Since, That's one of the things, frankly, that I love about what I'm doing right now. Interesting. Since, uh, since Dave sort of teed this one up, um, of course, the other side of that is questions around privacy, right? And in, um, <laughs> yeah. as our world evolves, there's various debates in various parts of our society about what privacy means and how much we value it and all that kind of good stuff. I, I'm wondering what is your, your take on on that uh, debate as far as what's important and how does Play Studio see privacy as part of your mission or uh, what you're doing? Well, it's, it's obviously really important. And so, you know, we have privacy practices um, that, that we follow to ensure that we in no way violate the privacy uh, and the integrity of the information that we have about a consumer um, and, I mean, we're, we're very, very strict in the way that we manage um, all of our data and data centers and, um, and who has access to the data. And so uh, we're, we're very, very rigorous or diligent about that stuff. Um, somewhat related to that, recognizing that, you know, because we come out of the regulated industry mm-hmm. and we understand how important it is to, to be responsible stewards of our industry, um, we tried to apply some of that thinking to the kind of unregulated free-to-play markets. And so um, the, the partner that I alluded to, Paul Matthews, 
uh, about a year ago, decided that we needed to be a thought leader and in, the, in our industry and that we needed to assemble a collection of companies um, that would become a part of an association that would openly evaluate the different issues that are facing our industry, uh, come up with a code of conduct, identify best practices that we could share and that we could all adopt, uh, and just really help to drive a level of you know, collaboration and sharing across the various participants in the industry so that, you know, whether it's government agencies or regulators or consumer groups would all recognize that, you know, as a group, we're, we're responsible and that we run our businesses with, uh, you know, an eye towards, you know, delivering a really trustworthy service. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I'm pretty proud of the work that he's done along that dimension. He, we hired a great guy who ran the policy group for Facebook over in Europe, who ha- who actually runs the the association, and Paul is the chairman of that group. Uh, and so, you know, it's a big deal, and and we we take it very seriously. Speaking of platform, I mean, the, today you guys are on uh, Facebook and also iOS and Android. I believe that's uh, the big three at the moment. Um, how, you know, Facebook, it sounds like is a big part of your business, but how is it dangerous to have so much of your business dependent on, uh, another company that you don't control? You know, that's a great question. Um, and yeah, I mean, it leaves you to some extent feeling a little bit vulnerable, but the reality is, uh, our interests are aligned, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they, they need for the companies that are operating within their ecosystem to be successful and thrive and grow because that is a primary source of their revenue. So, you know, um, and the reality is, look, they've worked really hard to build their community and their distribution channel uh, and the, the technologies that enable us to deliver our content into their channels. And, you know, there's a lot of people that complain about the fees that are paid as being too onerous. And sure, we'd all love to pay less, but where else can you find, you know, distribution channels like this where, you know, with one partner, you can publish your game and have access to hundreds of millions of people. Right. That's pretty unique. So. so about 12 months out from the launch in Facebook and maybe a month or two out from the mobile launch, how do you feel about where my Vegas is today? You know, look, I'm I'm really excited about the the prospects of the company. I think we, uh, you know, we focused on Facebook first because of the scale of that market, but it was clearly, I think, at the point of maturity, uh, where while it's still growing, it's growing at a, a much slower rate than where it was in 2011. And at the same time, there's this massive migration to mobile and expansion of different types of mobile devices and, you know, how much content people are consuming on them. And so the reality is we built our company servicing what is arguably our secondary market. And so, you know, now we're finally focused on what is arguably the most dynamic and biggest opportunity ahead of us. And I think that we have the benefit now of having taken everything that we learned going through the cycle on the web and on desktop and we now get to apply all those learnings to the product that we've created and built for mobile. And I, I think that, you know, we got a shot at, I really believe that, you know, our, our application is kind of the best within its category. It's, uh, it's, it's responsive and it has very high production values. And I think the underlying math and the way the economy is designed uh, is as good as anything in the category. The production values and the quality are far above anything else in the category. And then we're the only ones with the real-world rewards proposition. You know, if you love playing casino games, you shouldn't play any other than ours because not only do you get the entertainment value of the experience that you're having while you play, but you then also amass all these loyalty points that you can redeem for free vacations in Vegas and concert tickets and flight tickets and one-of-a-kind experiences that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise, like choreograph the fountains. At Bellagio, you know, we have a player that spent a million of his loyalty points, and for he and his wife's 40th wedding anniversary, uh, they had a, a beautiful dinner out on the terrace, right on the lake, uh, and he choreographed the fountains as a gift to her. And so, you know, we're not just letting people amass benefits and giving away a bunch of stuff. 
what we're doing is we're creating connections between people and creating memories uh, in, in the types of reward experiences that, that they're enjoying. So is that what you see Las Vegas having to do to adjust to the era of social communication and social networking? Uh, because obviously the city's had a very enduring appeal for a long time. And it seems like it keeps them adapting a lot. And it, it seems like what you're saying might be, this might be the best way for the city to adapt to what is going on now. You know, I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, I, my, I guess my point of view is that these are really significant new channels through which people are consuming content and connecting with brands and and I think it, I think everybody, every industry needs to figure out a way to leverage them effectively. You know, the problem the problem with industries like ours is that they're they're leisure industries and hospitality industries and entertainment industries. They appeal to people on an emotional level, right? When you go to Las Vegas, the operators are trying to craft and shape this experience for every person that walks in the building, so they can connect with them at an emotional level and provoke a, a connection and a response from them. Well, the minute that those people go home and they start to market to them, the whole experience moves from being one of connecting at an emotional level and having it be experiential to being very transactional, right? Mm-hmm. Come and take advantage of this offer or, you know, they're trying to stimulate and promote business. Well, what we're doing is we're extending the experience and connecting with people and motivating them to come back. And we're not doing it in a way that feels at all transactional or promotional because it's not. They get to play really great fun games, be reminded of all these really terrific brands that make up the Las Vegas experience and shop for stuff that has real value. And I think that that's the answer, right? We, that the city has to get away. The stewards of the experience of Las Vegas, the big companies, have to get away from just purely discounting in order mm-hmm. to drive consumption. And they've got to get back into the mode of guys like, you know, Steve Wynn and, and, and Bill Bennett and the guys that created these really unique experiences. They got to get back into the business of, of stimulating and provoking people to come because of the experience they're going to have, not because it's just the best value. It will be that too. But, but they can't continue to lead on price. As long as we lead on price, it's unhealthy for the market. Yeah. <laughs> I know that we're running out of time. I want to try and squeeze in two questions. Um, first is sort of a bigger picture about Play Studios. And, and you touched on culture uh, early in the call when talking about wind. But I, I'm wondering what sort of company and culture you're trying to build at Play Studios. You know, it's, not, it's funny. Not that different. You know, I, I want to get really talented people. Uh, to be, and I think I have, that are part of this company, and I want them to feel like the work they're doing here is the best work they've ever done, and I want them to feel proud and talk about it and have people respond to it in a way that just reinforces for them that what they're doing matters and it's a ton of fun. And, uh, you know, I just want them to feel like they're better off being a part of this company, that it's, that it's just an enriching experience for them. They're learning, they're doing great work, um, and, and hopefully it'll be rewarding. So I think that's the kind of culture we're building. Excellent. Before we sign off, I, uh, I wanted to have you put on your operator hat again for a minute and ask you, you know, we've seen since 2010, we've seen Cosmopolitan open and, um, SLS is going to open sometime next year. Um, in terms of Cosmopolitan, you know, great location, nice building, um, some interesting room product, but they have, not been a runaway financial success. Uh, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. I'm also, we've talked about SLS a lot on this show and just, especially due to its location, some of the challenges that they may have. What's any opinion on, uh, on that property and, and the challenges that they are facing? Look, I, I don't know that, I, that I've given enough thought to either of those projects. Um, what I will tell you is that I think that the Cosmopolitan suffers from a lack of, of discipline during its design and execution, not operating, not operation, right? I think they're doing as good a job positioning that place and that brand and attracting their market, um, but they're just, 
you know, the place is too big and it costs too much money. And, yeah. and so it'll never make the kind of financial sense that, that they'd hoped for. Um, and so, and I think John Unwin and the team there, you know, just, they do a terrific job. I think it's got a great attitude and it's fresh. Uh, and so I, I think they've done a good job. I think that SLS, you know, Rob Oslin and I right. worked together sure. dating back to the Mirage in 89. You will not find a bigger fan of his than me. Uh, he's a dear friend. He's a great guy. He's a smart operator. He's tireless. And if there's anybody that can figure out how to, how to make that place work, uh, it's Rob. And he gets to work with, you know, Sam and the collection of brands that Sam's worked so hard to build that have an absolute place in the market. Uh, and so I think, and there's enough of them where they'll have a critical mass, uh, you know, a collection of unique experiences and brands that people will identify with that I think people will go there and they'll enjoy that experience. And I think they're going to, I think that, and I hope that they'll be successful. Definitely. But I think there's a, is a, I think their vision for the project is inspired. I like the collection of brands. I love the operator. And so if anybody's got a shot at it, it's, it's him. Excellent. I think <laughs> uh, we'll leave it there. Um, Andrew, Sounds great. Thank you so much for taking the time this afternoon. We really appreciate it. We know you're busy. So we thank you very much. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks, guys, so much. All right. Great. Take care. Bye. Bye.